Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Okay. The Ancient Future Church Part 2. Part 2. If you're just joining us, our community here at Liquid is asking the question we all ask when we're seven years old, what do we want to be when we grow up? (laughs) But we're asking that as a church, as a community, as as a collection of Christ followers in this area of the world, in this country, in this state, in this particular time. Our ministry just celebrated our fourth birthday this past fall, and our staff and leadership is increasingly sensing that the time is about ripe that we become more intentional about God's call on us as a people and what he'd have us invest ourselves in and give our lives to. Um, What would God have us do with with the people who are already here? Those of you who are part of the core group of committed folks who consider this their church, their primary spiritual community. What about the tourists among us? Those who are browsing. I see you in your flowered shirts who stream in and out of our doors every week. Some who stay, others who are looking to connect would like to stay but can't seem to find their niche in our, in our community, more sobering, what about the people who are yet to come? What about that person who you invite to our screening of Narnia, comes for the series, what will they find beyond maybe some interesting, relevant teaching, but will they be able to connect with other brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, as we've looked towards the future to um, 2006 and beyond, we've been humbled to discover something interesting. That is, as we consider what's next or What would God have us give ourselves to in the year to come? We've discovered that, at least for the Christian church, the pathway to the future actually runs through the ancient past. That is, our hope is to actually become the kind of church that only God can get credit for. And to chart out our course to that compelling vision of the future, we're actually not consulting cutting-edge books or models or futurists or modern consultants. Rather, we're turning back the clock to find our vision to the early church, That original church, or ecclesia, that's Greek for church, that was found in the book of Acts because our belief is that God's word actually lays out the most compelling portrait for the kind of spirit-filled community that can actually be effective for the advance of Christ and his kingdom, especially in a post-Christian world like ours. And last week we dusted off some of the ancient rhythms of grace, of koinonia, remember that fancy word koinonia? Of generous living with God, with one another, with outsiders, that our spiritual forefathers oriented their lives around. So I want to dial back the clock again, kind of set our course for the second part of our teaching tonight. And I'd like to begin with a a brief just kind of history lesson by Leif Anderson. He's the author of several books, including Jesus, an intimate portrait of the man, his life, and his people. And I want to take you back to ancient Rome, first century A.D., or after the death of Christ. In fact, after his resurrection, his ascension, and the birth of his church, Anderson writes that the Roman Empire was a pagan place where Christian values were little known or honored. You guys know that. In ancient Rome, corruption was pervasive in business. Morality was at a historic low. Divorce was common to the point that marriage, conventional marriage, was actually little known. It was a dirty and filthy place. Riddled with disease and epidemics, life expectancy in ancient Rome was less than half of what it is in the U.S. today. There were very few families who had both parents, and few parents who ever saw all of their children grow to adulthood. 
Modern methods of, of birth control were virtually unknown, and abortion was frequent. Because medical procedures were pretty primitive, germ theory had actually not been invented yet, and no one knew about soap. Infection was rife, common. Many of those who underwent abortions ended up being infertile or dead. However, in ancient Rome, there was a primary method of birth control called infanticide. Actually, selective infanticide. What they do is actually determine the gender of the child at birth, and they would actually keep the male babies, but take the female infants either down to the seashore or out to the forest and actually just leave them to die of exposure. As you can imagine, this caused enormous social upheaval in the Roman Empire because suddenly there was a, there was a huge disequilibrium between the number of males and females. Epidemics swept through the cities to the point that up to half of the population of major cities would periodically be destroyed by measles or smallpox or bubonic plague. And when the cities were depopulated, the policy of the Roman government was actually to move tens of thousands of people from different parts of the empire overnight to repopulate those cities. So it resulted in communities where there were scores of different languages spoken and people could barely communicate. The Roman Empire was unusual for an ancient empire in its tolerance of diverse religions. Christianity actually came in under the umbrella of Judaism. However, there was a historic date when everything began to change. It was sort of a first century 9-11, when on July 19th, AD 64, the city of Rome burned. It burned furiously for 72 hours, and after the third day, the flames began to abate some. And just when everyone thought the city was saved, the flames began again, and it burned for three more days, destroying the homes of tens of thousands of people. It was rumored that the soldiers of Nero had actually stopped the firefighters from putting out the fires. Then it was rumored that the soldiers had actually set the fires themselves. All this suspicion and cynicism and confusion kind of circled and undermined the political base of Nero until it eroded not only in the Senate, but among all the people. And so Nero decided to blame all of this upon this mysterious new little sect of people called Christians. After all, they were an easy target. All sorts of rumors were swirling about this mysterious community of believers. There was a rumor that they were cannibals who ate the body and drank the blood of their leader. There were rumors that they were against family values because they claimed love and loyalty to their leader was to be greater than that to their family members. There were rumors that these people were sexually promiscuous because of the way they loved each other behind closed doors. And so Nero actually decided to take advantage of this by blaming this fledgling community of Christ followers for the disaster. Christians were gathered up by the hundreds. Some of them crucified. Some of them actually sewn into the skins of animals and thrown to wild animals. Perhaps the most heinous of all, according to the historian Tacitus, they would take Christians, dip them in pitch, and hoist them up on poles and light them on fire to illuminate Nero's gardens through the night. Three years after that fire, the Apostle Peter wrote these words to the early Christian church. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness 
into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. How are these Christians to live in the midst of a pervasively corrupt and hostile society? How would this church be distinguished from the toxic culture around them and even begin bringing a Christian influence to bear on their enemies? Well, for one, Christian husbands and wives were faithful to each other. They avoided divorce. Women were treated with dignity, actually, and respect. They did not have abortions. They kept and loved girl babies in this countercultural community. According to Anderson, the early Christians would actually go out and look for abandoned girls in the forest and down along the seashore, and then they would bring them back into their homes and raise them as their own. In that culture, especially with the growing shortage of women, pagans actually married younger and younger. Many girls were never allowed out of their homes their entire lives because they'd be kidnapped. They might be raped. They would be taken as child brides. Some of them were married as young as 11 or 12 years old. But the early Christian church was different. The church instituted, insisted, that women not marry until they were 18 to 20 years old. And this novel idea, they were to be virgins at the time of their wedding. According to Anderson, astonishing change came within the Roman Empire because it became increasingly evident that the church had cornered the market on females. That is, they had a disproportionate supply of marriageable women. As a result, single men in the empire, by the tens of thousands, started coming to church. <laughs> For their part, the churches insisted that they could not marry their women unless they converted to become Christian themselves. And again, by the tens of thousands, young Roman men converted in order that they could have wives. Wow, things have changed so much over the centuries, haven't they? <laughs> Beyond a new morality of sexual purity and commitment, this young church became notable for its compassion. When the plagues hit these cities, the standard health approach was to leave town, even if you left behind the disabled, your children, and the elderly. But these Christians, often at risk and loss of their own lives, would stay behind and take care of those who were abandoned. They would feed them. They would love them. What their family members discovered when they came back three or six months later after the plague had subsided was that family members they abandoned had converted. Why? Because they discovered and were cared for and loved by these Christians in a way that they could not find in their own families. When the slaves and others were forced to repopulate the cities, it was the Christians who offered them places to stay and helped them to find jobs. It was the Christians who taught them the language that they needed to know for commerce. They lived constantly in a holy manner that was astonishingly transformational. If you reach back to your college history course in ancient Civ, perhaps you were told that at the beginning of the 4th century, the Roman Empire changed to become a majority Christian empire because of one thing, a vision that the emperor had 
in which he saw the sign of the cross and the Latin words, in hoc signo vinces, in this sign, conquer. And as legend goes, he took the first two letters of Christos Kiro, put it on his banners, and he went into battle. Constantine was victorious in that battle. And so in the year AD 313, he declared Christianity to be a religion of the empire. In so doing, Christianity became the official religion of the state, or so many of us were told and taught. However, there are those who now take a more diligent approach on that. Rodney Stark, a professor at the University of Washington, writing for the Princeton University Press, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, takes this review of what actually happened. He establishes a baseline of 40 AD and estimates there are probably about 1,000 fledgling Christians in the Roman Empire. Now, we might say that there actually were more because we remember 3,000 were converted earlier than that at Pentecost. Remember, as recorded in the second chapter of Acts last week? But grant him that in 40 AD there were 1,000 believers in the entire empire. That would amount to 17 one-thousandth of 1% of the population. Virtually no one. But by living consistent and godly lives of moral clarity, of compassion, and of radical generosity, their numbers increased. Now, you financial types, now Dave, tell me if I do the math on this right. If you can grow your money at 7% per year, in 10 years, you can actually what? Double it. That's the law of compounding. Well, apparently, the combination of the law of compounding and Christian holiness meant that Christians multiplied enormously. Until 160 years later, in the year 200 AD, there were 218,000 Christians in the empire. From 1,000 to 218,000 in 16 decades. Christians represented 36 one-hundredths of 1% of the population of the empire. But if you carry transformational living and the law of compounding out far enough you'll discover that by the year 350 A.D., there were 33.9 million Christians in the Roman Empire, representing 56.5% of the total population. Constantine, in other words, had a Christian majority. You understand this? He had no other political choice but to legalize Christianity. It was not he that changed the empire to become Christian. Rather, it was holy called out Christian living over centuries that transformed an empire. And it was Constantine who recognized what the Spirit of God had done through the church of Jesus Christ. How did they do it? They lived lives of unswerving devotion, of compassion for the weak, of love for God and one another, and community that was radical and transformational. As Peter describes As aliens and strangers in the world, they live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they saw their good deeds and glorified God. From a marginalized and misunderstood minority, the early Christians became a culture-impacting community of such quiet force an irresistible influence that the watching world of non-believers couldn't help but confess the presence of Jesus was among them. And so they became the kind of church that only God could get credit for. And so you see that the church, as a cultural force to be reckoned with, actually is possible. But it doesn't happen by accident, and it doesn't happen overnight, does it? 
Make no doubt, it's all through the strength and power of God's Holy Spirit. But it's that Spirit's working in and through the lives of believers in real-time ways that cause them to live with compassion. Acts of mercy, loving sacrifice, that truly brings renewal to this world. It was the uniqueness of their behavior, the day-to-day testimony of their care for one another, for the weakest of those in the corrupted world around them that gave power to their testimony and glorified God. And although we live 20 centuries later, and much has changed since the Christian church has gone from minority status to majority, and actually now back to minority again, we as Christ's followers, as the ancestors of the early church, have inherited the same admonition that Peter gave those early Christians. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's what happened with the early church. They didn't just have a verbal testimony or an interesting speaker about Jesus as their savior. But their concrete behavior and demonstrable generosity indicated he was Lord of their lives. Last week we looked at Acts chapter 2. And I'd actually like to return there just to repaint the picture of intentional transformation with which they lived. If you brought your Bible with you, you can turn to it, Acts 2, 42 through 47. And again, this was the earliest recorded description of the ancient church. And what it offered us is an inside look of their body life together, actually, how they related to God, to one another, and the world around them. Read with me, Acts 2, 42 through 47. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, And to prayer, everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Three things jumped out at us that the early church was led to devote themselves to under the direction of the Holy Spirit. You recall the first? What? Teaching, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Grounding new believers in the apostles' teaching was the primary priority for this early church. How did this new faith impact the way that they were to now live? How was it to affect their lifestyles? Yeah, their sexuality, their prayers, their private lives, their pocketbooks, what they did with their their property, their marriages, their relationships with employers or those beneath them. Those were the practical, real-time issues that the apostles frequently addressed in their letters to the young church. Since God had entered human history in a real-time way, Jesus, dying, raised to life, everything was now changed for this new community. And the apostles' teaching about Jesus and the new life of the kingdom was primary. The second feature of their life together, as we saw, was fellowship. Good. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, koinonia. This is the word Luke uses for fellowship here. And the idea behind koinonia is sharing, intimacy, fellowship in general. It was important, apparently, to these early believers to spend a lot of time together. Far from our fragmented Western notions of community, highly individualistic around here, these early Christians spent a lot of time together. Not only discussing the apostles' teaching, but encouraging and challenging each other, and most significantly, just enjoying one another 
in the new family bond that the Holy Spirit created among them. Luke tells us they broke bread. That is, they shared common meals and all the bonding that occurs around the dinner table. But they also shared the Lord's Supper and profited from the special bonding that occurs between brothers and sisters when they get together to celebrate the sacrifice of their Savior. Go ahead, Jen. Communion. We now have the same blood running through us, the blood of Jesus. It's not about social economic status. It's no longer about education or political perspective. We're not just all Republicans. That's why we gather here for the club. Something transcends it. Friends, enjoying friendship with God from familiarity to family. That's the picture we're given. They were praying people, lifting up praises in a single voice, giving words to one another's needs and petitions when they were too weak to pray themselves. They bonded around God around their common life in Jesus Christ. Somehow the many differences between them, the different jobs, economic situations, one master, one a slave, one a teacher, another illiterate, they were all transcended by the common joy and generosity they found in their shared life with Jesus. As verse 44 says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Same town, home in the hills, same minivan. No. This koinonia, or community fellowship among them, also resulted in something else, vital to the kingdom witness of the early church. Demonstrable generosity. These weren't just folks familiar with one another. Or once a week, came to a building, hey, Kyle, what's up? And if the spirit led them, particularly generous, they opened up their parking spot for the guy in the pew next to them. Rather, their commitment to one another was so great that it resulted in a radical sharing of their resources, Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Their sense of spiritual unity was so fierce, at least in the area of economic inequality, the Holy Spirit motivated the rich folk to eBay their stuff (laughs) in order to meet the needs of the poorer members of the group. Two chapters over in Acts 4, it gave us another window into this incredibly united, incredibly generous church. Luke writes, all the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses, and so, they sold them. They brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Now, how's that for community? <laughs> Who wouldn't want to belong to a church like that? Donald Trump would not want to belong to a church like that. It's like these people suddenly discovered the true nature of what God had given them. Salvation, grace, a new life, riches in Christ Jesus. Suddenly everything changed for them. I was talking with my friend Chris yesterday and he told me a funny little experience he had with his younger daughter, Natalie, who's about three years old. Chris was telling me he had one of those big, huge bags of M&Ms left over from Halloween. How many of you have the leftover candy? And he poured some on the counter, called his daughter over, gave some to Natalie. And she's a cute little girl. If you've ever seen her, she's a toe-headed little girl. She's got little glasses. And she went about eating them like a starving little squirrel, like eating them one by one, you know, guarding them like gold. And Chris was telling me, he said, it was so funny, Tim, because I bent down to her and I said, can I have one, Natalie? 
And he said she almost looked sideways at him, looked at her hand, and then back at him, kind of frowned, and then very grudgingly pried open one finger to let one single M&M out. And Chris said, I had to laugh, Tim, because I was like, oh, Natalie, you don't even understand. I, I have a whole bag to give you, more M&Ms than you can imagine that I am capable of giving you. But here was my child, greedily crutch, clutching onto her little candies, desperately holding them for herself. She didn't understand that I had a bag in the other room, what I had to offer her. And it made Chris sad. And as Chris told me that story, it got me thinking about the early church and what compelled them to sell all they had and give all that they had to anyone who was in need. And I suddenly realized it. They saw their daddy's M&M bag. You see? They caught a glimpse of their father's limitless generosity in Jesus. And suddenly it was like the scales dropped from their eyes and changed everything. Instead of orienting their lives around accumulating more and holding on to their stuff and get more for themselves, they said, are we nuts here? God has given us everything, including his very son, Jesus. And so they let it go and began giving things away. Why? They got it. There was so much more where that came from. And daddy is good. He wants to bless me. He wants me to share with my brothers and sisters. He's entrusted me with so much and promises to give me more. I'm going to let it go and just trust him. And so this early church gave freely, extravagantly, dare we say, recklessly, (laughs) because grace compelled them. True giving begets giving. Freely we've received, freely we now must give. And it's that third characteristic of demonstrable generosity that had a transformational effect on the non-believing culture around them. If you go back to Acts 2, verse 47, Luke tells us the early Christians enjoyed the favor of all the people. That's not just the Christian people. All the people in the culture around them. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In other words, the kind of common life they shared together had a huge impact on those who were looking into the church's windows. (laughs) Their generosity, their promiscuity in considering others better than themselves and serving them They share everything in their bank accounts, but they don't share their bed. What kind of house is this? It became the primary evangelistic tool of the church. Charity was the way the Holy Spirit worked to reach beyond church walls and draw others into the fellowship. It's a beautiful picture when you think about it. When you link all three aspects of the early church life together, as they focused upward, teaching and worship, right? Learning more about God, worshiping God, as they focused inward, koinonia, fellowship, caring for one another, communing around meals, intimate times of communion and prayer, just loving one another and meeting one another's needs, it had an impact outward, evangelistic. The watching world couldn't help but be attracted to the beautiful and generous way of life that was incarnated among them with God at the center. Theirs truly was the realization of Jesus' prayer for them and his prayer for us. In John 17, 23, may they be one, Father, as we are one, I and them, you and me. May they be brought to such complete unity to let the world know 
that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is what Jesus was dreaming of hours before he took to the cross for our sins. That in the wake of his sacrifice, a community of followers full of his spirit, a church would rise marked by such spiritual unity, such demonstrable generosity that the non-believing culture would have no choice but to sit up, take notice, and confess this kind of life they're living is a reflection of God himself. Because of this church, because the spirit of Jesus is so alive in them, I'm beginning to believe. Through their unified life together, I'm beginning to believe that this Jesus they worship is love. (laughs) There's no other way to explain this, that God loves me. And he's loved and he's changed these people. Again, who wouldn't want to join a church like that? A church so unified and compelling that only God could get credit for its existence. Newsflash, this is not that church. I know that won't come as a surprise to most of you. And we've never shrunken from the simple acknowledgement that Liquid is not a perfect church. (laughs) If you've spent any time here, you know that we're simply a collection of broken folks who are loved by Jesus and in continual need of grace, continually being forgiven, continually forgiving one another. Perhaps one of our modest strengths is that maybe we're just a bit more honest about that. We're not a perfect church. And I don't want to romanticize the early church because it wasn't perfect either. It's so funny, just a chapter over in Acts 5, you'll read of the first scandal that rocked their community, right? Of Ananias and Sapphira who decided this little community sharing thing was a fine way to live, of boosting our own reputation. (laughs) And their attempted deception of the apostles was the starting point for a series of internal conflicts and problems that seemed to plague the Christian church ever since. There's no perfect church. You know what they say. If you ever find a perfect church, don't join it, because you will ruin it. (laughs) We're not a perfect church. But I do believe, and I know, there are many others here who believe along with me, that we could be doing a lot better. After last week's message, I got an email from a sister in our congregation who wrote... Dear Tim, I'm not exactly sure why I'm writing, except, well, I kind of feel moved to. I came to Liquid last night, and it kind of spoke to me. I'm sure you hear that a lot. Funny thing is, I've come to Liquid off and on for a while, but I have mostly been a backdoor kind of attendee. Not by choice, necessarily, for many reasons. I live 45 minutes away. I have two little girls and a non-church-going husband. So I come when I can and slip in and slip out. Funny that your message was about just that last night. I was pondering this and what it meant for me and how do I desperately, how I do desperately need that spiritual community thing you were talking about. And then up on the screen, there I am, bigger than life. I was in the picture you showed at the end, on the boardwalk with Mary Jo and the three little boys. I'm making a peace sign. Was God saying something to me? Yes, Laura, I'm talking to you. Now, hopefully, I can figure out what it means. Due to the constraints I mentioned before, I haven't been able to become involved the way I would like. 
except I did attend the gay pride thing, which was the best thing I've ever done with a church. It felt so right. I love challenging existing thoughts and traditions, breaking down boundaries, and nothing feels better to me than to quietly serve others, preferably behind the scenes. Just to do something nice and show a little love with no hidden agenda. Though much of the time I'm held back by fear, life constraints, and loneliness. I am so disillusioned with churchianity. Dull traditions without meaning, hypocrites, and hatred in the name of God. That I find it very difficult to connect with the real faith community. I've recently stopped attending my home church and I'm still looking for that community that I desire. So thanks for that opportunity, and thanks for the teaching and mission that Liquid provides, Laura. I appreciate this note from Laura, because it gives voice to the frustrations that many of us feel when we come to church. The difficulty connecting. How anonymous it can be. Slip in, slip out. Unknown. The many practical reasons for that, right? Travel distance. How many travel more than 45 minutes? Kids, a spouse who's, who's not on the same page. As I said last week, far from sharing one another's financial burdens, it's a challenge just to know the names of one another here at Liquid on Sunday nights, especially for new folks. Dark, sometimes crowded. You can slip in, slip out, unnoticed, disconnected, and tragically feeling uncared for, unloved. As I told you, it's not just new folks. I find myself intimidated, disconnected at times, and I'm here every week. Folks assume I know everyone hardly. It's very frustrating to me not to know more about many of your lives. And as I said, I'm the kind of pastor who actually does like people. You wouldn't believe how many misanthropes find their way into ministry. But my experience is no different than yours. It's wonderful to share a teaching time together, but even I, the teacher, sometimes get in my truck after the service and driving on the way home, find my mind just kind of wondering, shouldn't there be something more to our church than this. I love the worship, folks. I enjoy the messages, both preparing them and giving them. I like the movie clips especially. (laughs) But shouldn't there be something more to our common life together, to our shared friendship with Jesus, than just a couple hours a week of singing and teaching? Laura points to a wonderful example noting how the highlight for her last year was at our gay pride thing. The power of just going out to serve others, demonstrating the love of God through practical acts of kindness, grace, no strings attached. Guess what? That is learning as well. That is discipleship. That builds community. Bonding God's children as they go out and do the kinds of things that actually serve the outside world in a way that actually brings glory back to God, just like Peter's talking about. The power of that outreach was not in its complexity, but in its simplicity. Live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And I could tell you it changed me. Far beyond any messages I prepared last year, there was something about doing, about going out, rubbing elbows, putting up our sleeves together, and putting our love for Christ into demonstrable action to neglected and needy folks. That took me to a whole other level of love for God, as well as the people that he misses most. And so what I'd like to do with our time remaining and with this this portrait of the early church as our backdrop and inspiration for the year to come is actually just kind of list and call out as Laura did. 
some of the current assumptions that are at the heart of our ministry right now. And then talk with you about several what-ifs for 2006. Because I believe that there's actually quite a bit of latent unity among us. It's sitting there. It needs to be catalyzed. It may be dormant. Or you may feel alone in what you're longing to experience in the family of God. But you're not. You're not alone. There are others ready for more. In fact, I'm one of them. To take a look at a general overview of the current assumptions our community is operating under, the first is that teaching and worship is the key entry point of our church life. It's the main, you know, I mean, I'm saying the obvious. It's the main focus on Sundays. Music, relevant teaching, pros and cons. Pro, hey, it's wonderful and actually important to corporately praise God, <laughs> just as it was with the early church. They praised, they prayed. Relevant Bible teaching is foundational to any ministry that hopes to make folks mature spiritually. Con, little else happens around here on Sundays. Can I just say that? You can hear some good music, know on a message, and simply go home. Disconnected. Passive viewership. <laughs> Consumerism. Result, teaching and worship every Sunday, hopefully done with a degree of integrity, but a dynamic experience that engages folks in their hearts and minds, but at the end of the day, is there more? Not much. Second core assumption, spiritual growth during the week outside of Sunday is an individual responsibility. Your personal devotions and growth are up to you. If you want to pray with others, hey, you got to take the initiative. Reach out to them. Result, we have one opportunity for small group experience, TCs, transformational communities. Something that happens on a separate day of the week, and it's optional. Currently about 80 folks RNTC training that Drew leads. And, and the result is that it results actually in radical life change in the hearts of some and actually no change at all in the hearts of others. Third core assumption. Connection and community, fellowship, koinonia with others is also an individual responsibility. If you really want to connect with someone here, you know, it's up to you folks. Get to it. Therefore, at Liquid, you will find highly extroverted people are successful. Because they're aggressive, and they're intentional about making friends, and they, they end up thriving at Liquid. I was talking with Jan, who was up here singing beautifully before, and she's like, Tim, it was so intimidating. We're talking about this week at a meeting, and she said, first time I came, she says, nobody greeted me. And she wasn't complaining. I was asking her about her experience. And she's like, I actually came up. There was a girl who seemed to be sitting all alone, and she was praying. And I was like, oh, maybe she's one of the spiritual ones. And I went and said, could I sit here? And she looked up. She was crying because no one welcomed her, we would sit next to her. And so they bonded on both, feeling outcasts. <laughs> Koinonia. <laughs> a community we have right now with some people who are very connected, others not at all connected. It takes persistence on an individual's part to get plugged in right now. Maybe feel that way. Fourth, outreach or service to those outside church walls, is, is a special project predominantly, just like the gay pride thing. It's arranged by leaders. It occurs at certain times when specialists dream it up. Just like the gay pride outreach, something, you know, every five months or so. Beyond that, it's up to you to incorporate that spiritual discipline of evangelism, reaching out to love and serve others into your own life. The result, well, at least if you're like me, <laughs> you long for opportunities more like that, to put your faith in action. It's, 
it's hard to do as an individual effort most times. You don't know where to start. Often miss the special power of partnering with others to transform our culture. You can serve one-on-one, absolutely essential. But there's something en masse that happens when God's people do it together. That's what scripture tells us. The leadership at Liquid is actually a small group of folks, very finite, who support primarily the Sunday program. That is, the, and I want to say you know, in a, a stagey way, but the production, what's happening here on Sunday night, is actually a result of just a handful of people with specific talents or specialized gifts. In fact, all of the ministries that drive Liquid, from hospitality to newcomers to media, is staffed by a handful of folks. They say in most churches, 20% of the population do 80% of the work. At Liquid, it's more like 7% doing 93%. I just spoke with Lindsay Nam, who oversees our Liquid Kids thing. You get two people out at Liquid Kids, and it, like, cripples it. Because there are only a few who have the specific gift of teaching kids, right? Only a few can be with children. <laughs> yeah. It's not sustainable. And it can appear exclusive or impenetrable to those who want to help, actually, get involved and lead others. What about folks who have other gifts, or want to contribute in a way outside of Sundays, left out, underutilized. The final core assumption right now at Liquid is that a low church commitment is the way to go. Folks are busy, you know, they're easily turned off by church, so the less we ask of folks, the better. (laughs) Therefore, we have no membership. We have little emphasis on giving. You know what I say every time, right? Your gift is your presence with us. We don't want your money. Okay, everyone's taking that too seriously. (laughs) You think about the early church. Yeah, once you join our our New Testament community, you actually may eBay all of your stuff to give to your new brothers and sisters. Whoa. The result is that we have a very attractive service here for non-church people, Overchurch people, though a fairly large backdoor for those who don't take the next steps of getting involved, plugged in, going to a CC. Little responsibility to the community. A few volunteers, little giving, tithing is the priority of some. I don't want to dismiss that. I appreciate you. But tipping is the practice of most. Okay? Candid. Family talk. These are just some of the current assumptions that our church community currently operates under. This is what we came up with this past month, good, bad, as our staff has been asking God what he'd like to do with all of us. But now, in the light of our shared desire for something more, not for something new necessarily, but for something actually more ancient, or a bit closer to the kind of intimate kingdom-breaking fellowship experienced by those early Christians, we began generating what I call what-if statements. I love what-if statements. We put them on a whiteboard, and you can put anything down. <clears throat> and we're really interested, actually, in what you guys think about this. I see some of you vibing, like, going, shaking your head at me, like, mm, he's talking about me. Um, no, I'm talking about me. But I want to know what, let me warn you, were, were we to seriously embrace some of these what-if statements, they could fundamentally change our experience of liquid as we know it, especially on Sunday nights. What if, for instance, teaching and worship continued to be a primary vehicle of spiritual growth, but we said, so is fellowship with others and serving the world just as central and important. Possible result? 
Tim loses his job. <laughs> we reduce the teaching and worship time to allow for other forms of spiritual formation, such as small group worship. What if we actually made room for regular prayer for people to pray together or to share meals or perhaps communion regularly? Or devoting time to outreach, actually, to getting out of the church, to saying the best church service last year was when we had no service Laura, and demonstrating the love and kindness of God to the world around us through serving the people in our communities. What if it was no longer a special project that a certain group of us did periodically if it worked out with our calendar? But service was part of the monthly rhythm of our shared life together on a regular basis. What if? Second what if. What if we were all responsible for helping our brothers and sisters grow in Christ? What if we actually called out and rejected the highly privatized and individualistic mantra of our culture and said, no, we are going to actually be intentional about growing in Christ together. It's not nobody's business but my own. It's not dependent on Tim or my small group leader, but we are our brothers and sisters keepers. We have a responsibility, and I'm willing to make the commitment to grow in community in Christ with other children in his family. Result, possibly, regular opportunities for people to interact and discuss their faith, their lives, to encourage others to do so as well, along with ongoing opportunities to make that happen in TCs. But what if we had more than TCs? Smaller growth and fellowship groups that met regularly, shared a common prayer life together. Shared life together. What if? What if Liquid created an atmosphere where connection and community could happen more naturally. Now, understand, this could be really scary to Liquid as we know. We might even turn the lights up. It might mean having to talk to people you don't know and don't particularly look like they'd be interesting to talk to. But it begin focusing on others. Sunday night actually begins being used to actually foster connected community. Regular attenders each take on a responsibility to each other that doesn't currently exist. It might actually result in the end of tourists... But it also might result in some of them becoming family. What if? What if outreach or service to those beyond church walls was central to our mission as God's people? Not periphery, not tangential, central. Woven into the very fabric and rhythm of our church life together every month. Instead of periodically... It's regular, expected, and planned for. Participated in by everyone who calls us their family. Not just the leaders and certain folks with a special passion for evangelism. What if? What if we said five months between serving together is not enough? We have more love than that to give. Our mandate to serve, to live such good lives among the pagans that they may see our good deeds and glorify God, it's so central to actually our own growth, to our effectiveness for Christ's kingdom, that doing is just as important as believing. Teaching about faith is central, but so is living it out. In fact, they serve the same goal, growing in Christ's likeness. And so we say regular outreach is just as essential to our life together as getting together to learn songs or learn scripture. What if? What if we became known for our actions? That's the church that does just as much for our words. 
But if we began taking some of the, the neglected passages of Scripture that kind of are used for a Hallmark card now and then, when James says, true religion is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress. That's how you'll know church people, and actually not church people, people who are animated by the Holy Spirit of God. They seek out those in society who are in need, who are crippled. What if? What if we didn't just give a free pass to single moms for a free screening of Narnia for their kids? But what if this became the church that loves and embraces single moms, the widows of our day, like no other community does in the entire state? What if? Now, that would be a church that only God could get credit for. But remember, it also might mean we have to redirect our focus on Sunday nights when we get together. We actually have to, might have to stop doing some things in order to make room for new things. What if leadership was for core community members who love people, not just run programs? As instead of saying leadership is primarily for those with unique gifts that support the Sunday production, we actually took the emphasis off of running programs and put it on leading people. It's not just the domain of folks with a specialized gift, but for those who love to spend time and serve and just listen to, influence other people, coach them, pray for them, just love on them. We actually are saying, if you are Miss Subtlety, we can't do this alone anymore. Tim, Glenn, Erica, Drew are not enough. We need other shepherds, people who can lead others, who can nurture them, who can help disciple them and just love on them. Now, that's a rare talent. <laughs> but but you, you see the shift? Moving from what you can do to feed the machine to how you can love. Don't look at my PowerPoint. <laughs> Me. We need a new PowerPoint person. <laughs> just kidding. Ah, just kidding. Blessings on you. Final what if, commitment. What if commitment to God, to one another, to the world around us, actually became a core value? Rather than lowering the bar or encouraging low-level discipleship that actually asks little of folks who attend our church, what if we actually went counterculture to our transient revolving door culture that rejects loyalty or long-term fidelity anything and say, what we are trying to build here is actually something more permanent than a cutting-edge ministry or accessible alternative for folks looking for something to do on Sunday nights. Instead, what we're trying to build is an actual outpost of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, right here in New Jersey, of all places, a place where, yes, there's relevant teaching dynamic worship that attracts seekers, but perhaps more importantly, embodies the kind of vibrant first-century Christianity that breaks stereotypes through committed, loving community that puts its faith into action and makes the world a better place together. We come and go. No, we come and we commit. We commit our time to one another we commit our treasure to supporting the work that we believe God wants us to be a part of here. And we actually, we, we serve others. 
We invite them. We don't even just invite friends to a service anymore when Tim's speaking about a cool topic, but maybe to an outreach event. Because who wants to hear the windbag? <laughs> Different points of entry for those investigating what this new life in Christ is truly all about. It's funny, I have some other neighbors down the street, Rich and Emily. It was amazing. I had an amazing moment a couple months ago. Ding dong, they ring our doorbell. I come, hey, what's going on, Emily? And she goes like this. She goes, she goes um, um, we're leaving. Rich and I are leaving. We're going away for three weeks. We massed all our vacation together. We're going on a trip. I was like, where are you going? Italy, Rome? And she's like, no, we're going down to New Orleans, actually. Okay? And, uh, and I was like, oh, down New Orleans? What's, what's going on down there? We just feel like we've been watching the images. These are non-Christian people. We are watching the images on television, and something inside us is just compelling us. We have to do something. Something about the suffering down there. And I know this is probably like a drop in the ocean, but we're taking our three weeks vacation. Six weeks total. It's going to cost us. We're going down there. Can you watch my plants? Can you water them? And she hands me the key. I said, yes, I will water your plants, Emily. (laughs) I have never invited Emily and Rich to church, and I probably never will. First off, it'd be really weird. Come to church on Sunday night. Come hear me speak. (laughs) Weirdness, weirdness. But God has set eternity in their hearts, hasn't he? What would it be like, Rich and Emily, would you like to come to church with me? Well, I don't know, what time's your service? Oh, well, our service tonight is actually, our service is not in Basking Ridge, I've got to warn you. It's actually down in Newark. We're serving tonight at the Battered Women's Shelter. Yeah, that's our, our church, it's what we do. Would Rich and Emily respond to that? Would they actually have something probably to show us about that? Oh, yeah. What if? What if? Those are two powerful words that unlock the scariness and potential for being the kind of people called out by God to spend ourselves in the service of something larger than business as usual. So enough for me. I actually was just the guy chosen to present what our staff and leadership has been chewing on. What do you think? What's stirring in your heart right now? You want to be a part of the conversation? (laughs) Of giving yourself to actually help shape and become a church that only God can get credit for. Folks, your voice is needed. And we welcome it. Now, remember, I remember someone once told me it's much harder to create than it is to critique, isn't it? (laughs) We truly value your creative input. One of the reasons I'm bringing this up in November, in advance of 2006, we typically don't do that. But again, it's like, what if we moved it away from the professionals and give it to the people? All of us together. So I wanted to close by inviting you actually to opt in. We want you to email us. Tell us your thoughts, your hopes, your desires to be potentially even a part of, a, of, of this vision going forward as God leads us. It's funny, last week a couple of you came up to me after um, last week's message, just kind of beaming, all excited, grabbed my arm and said breathlessly, Koinodia, what can I do? We want to be a part of that. Oh, you scratch right edge, Tim, my heart longs for that. I want to help. What can I do? And the answer is, I don't know yet. Let's be honest. But I do know this. Just knowing There are others out there 
who want to help, who are willing to count the cost and do some heavy lifting rather than low-level critiquing, man, that makes all the difference. At least it does for me. And it convinces me that God is actually here at work among us, planting something in our collective heart. Is God calling you to be a part of that? Let us know this week. You don't even have to write anything long or wordy. Just, I'm in. (laughs) And we'll be in touch with you in the weeks ahead. I may not be able to to respond personally to every email, but we want to continue this conversation actually in smaller groups, in more casual settings, so we can actually seek God together. So email us, future at liquidchurch.com. What's God stirring in your heart? Because that's our heart together. Let me pray. Let's stand to pray and ask God to lead us as we go forward from here. Lord Jesus, um, aware, Lord Jesus, that um, these aren't light words, Lord God. And the early church isn't a manual, an operating manual, how to grow a successful church. It just is what happened when your spirit got loosed in the hearts of people. When you loved on them, they began loving you in return. It spilled over to loving one another. And then it spilled over that into loving the people in the world around them. And the pagans saw something different. And the Spirit of God brought them into the family. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the early church. Thank you for our spiritual forefathers and mothers who sacrificed and probably faced more challenges, Lord, in a lot of different ways, many of them very physical challenges, Lord, to being your people in a, in a um, hostile society. But, Lord, we face other challenges, whether it's time, whether it's distance, Lord, whether it's just the busyness and hecticness of life here in this area of the country. But we, we offer that back to you, Lord. Would you begin toppling obstacles to our connection with one another? Would you begin a special work of your Holy Spirit now, equipping men and women, brothers and sisters, grow affection in them, Lord, even for one another, me, for each person here, Lord, each of us for you. Lord, I think of Rich and Emily. I think of other people who would never come here, but they have a longing, Lord, to spend themselves. Lord, that's fruit on the vine for us to pick. And so I ask that you'd make us good harvest hands. Give us eyes to see. And now fill us with your power as we go out. We ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.